Hello, welcome to Lazada Insider, featuring knowledge that makes a difference. We share trusted insights, forward-looking perspectives, and exclusive expert interviews to keep you ahead of the curve. Hi all, welcome to Lazada Insider Sustainability Series. I am your host, Shaz, from Lazada. Multiple forces such as escalating consumer demand for sustainable products, impact of climate change on business costs, and increasing regulation and legislation around sustainability are driving business to change. Meanwhile, in Southeast Asia, the sustainability scene is growing in terms of awareness and there is an increasing recognition of the benefits and importance of adopting sustainable business models. However, Southeast Asia also faced challenges on multiple fronts such as lack of awareness and regulatory support and consumer price sensitivity that slowed the sustainability progress in this region. Today, we have Nicole from Nielsen to share with us some insights about the future of sustainability in Southeast Asia. Hi, Nicole. Thank you for joining us today. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure thing. Hi, Shaz, and thanks very much for the opportunity to speak with you all today. So, um, yeah, so just to give a little bit of context, I work within our global thought leadership team here at Nielsen IQ. And from hopefully most of you know who Nielsen IQ is, but in case you don't, um, we are a global market research company who really are looking at the full view of what consumer buying behaviour is uh, around the world. Uh, and, you know, with that intention, we're really looking to try and help identify new pathways to growth. And that might be through measuring you know, more channels, more consumers or more countries to really uh, look at or deliver the industry's most understandable and actual insights uh, across the world. So within the work that we specifically do within Global Thought Leadership, we're really looking at sort of what are some of those key disruptive forces of change that are really underlying, you know, some of the big macro moves that we see happening. And to us, we believe that it's really critical for businesses to be understanding these so that they can plan and think ahead about how their businesses might need to adapt and change as a result of these forces uh, as we go forward. So we actually ran a specific uh, study uh, in quarter four of last year, which was a component of our bigger story that we're going to be talking about today. But just so that you're aware, when we talk about our consumer sentiment, you know, we refer to the survey that we did across 17 markets globally, but within the Asia Pacific region, we covered Australia, Indonesia, Singapore, Thailand, South Korea, China, and India. So hopefully that just gives you a little bit of context uh, for what we're talking about. Thanks, Nico. Um, as mentioned, uh, it is globally observed that there is a growing pressure uh, from government and consumer for companies uh, to be sustainable. So um, why is it now is a critical moment in the sustainability movement of many companies? What are the driving forces behind this urgency? I think, you know, as, you know, you said up front, we have really identified sort of these three big disruptive forces that have really um, set, the, set the scene, I suppose, for this critical juncture that we've reached in the last 12 to 18 months. And I don't know everyone, you know, on the call, but for me personally, I think once you sort of have your ear open to sustainability, it's in the news every day in terms of, you know, different announcements that countries are making, you know, whether it's the impact 
of climate change that we're we're seeing across the board. Um, or, you know, I know even just last night listening on the, the news, the United Nations have taken, you know, climate change and its impact to, uh, you know, the international courts to recognise. So there's this massive momentum, I think, behind the, the whole area. But the two... You know, apart from increasing consumer demand, which um, you know we'll speak of uh, as a little bit later, one of the other key or two of the key things we're seeing is one the increasing amount of government legislation that is really happening in this area, and by no means Europe is the key leader in driving uh, a lot of the regulatory change that we're seeing. Um, and I think when you know we look at things from our uh, global thought leadership point of view, we often look to certain markets where we see those th- that some markets as a key indicator or a key signal of what might then happen across other markets moving forward. And if we think of that just for a moment in terms of what is Europe doing at the moment, um, we can start to see that they are really making some huge strides, I suppose, in this area towards implementing specific sets of sustainability mandates that aren't that are going to be compulsory for organizations to follow. And that's really going to start to impact large organizations and, and companies in the very near future. Um, Often that's going to be, you know, to try and incentivise uh, companies to change, but then in the worst case will also be to penalise as well if they're not, you know, living up to those requirements that uh, are happening. And some of those changes, you know, and we're seeing little bits and pieces of it around our region, and I say little, obviously still major, you know, in terms of their context, but, you know, it might be focusing on plastic reduction or things like that. But some of the the big ones that are happening with Europe, and just one example is the that passed towards the end of last year through European Parliament was the European Deforestation Act. And basically what that act is all about is that, the European Union is effectively going to prohibit the import of any commodities, so that might be beef or soy or palm oil, coffee or cocoa, for example, that uh, you're not allowed to bring those those products into the uh, company if there is any risk or sign that they have come from an area that has been impacted by deforestation. So what that's going to do is then put the onus on companies who are importing into the European Union that they need to certify that their goods have not harmed forests at all in the last two years. I think the cutoff date for, you know, the certification was December 2020. So what that does is it starts to set a global benchmark, I suppose, of, you know, this is the expectation. If you want to trade with us, if you want to sell your products in our market, this is what you need to do. But it will also start to hasten the passage of similar laws that might start to roll out and create that impetus for change moving forward. Um, so, you know, just an example, I suppose, of, of what we're seeing. And I think that other big, you know, driver of change as well is just the very real impact that um, extreme weather events are having on global supply chains and on the way companies, you know, are doing business and where they source their products from. And that, I think, is one of the big sort of call-outs as well, why companies need to just look internally to say what risk can we start to manage within our own business portfolio if we can't rely on the ingredients or where we traditionally source our products from, you know, how do we start mitigating risk and looking at more secure ways or different ingredient sources or different products to um, to make sure we can guarantee that supply moving forward and, and try and mitigate some of these costs, particularly within this inflationary environment that we're seeing. 
Um, then what would you say, you know, what would be the benefits uh, of company acting towards sustainability? And, you know, then what are the costs of not doing so? So I think, you know, to be honest, it's it's that cost of misaction or not doing any action that is really critically, and that sort of focuses on that second uh, force that I've just touched on there in terms of the actual impact that extreme weather events are having on our supply chains as we go forward. Because, you know, if manufacturers can increasingly start to look for additional or differentiating sourcing to mitigate some of that uh, ingredient scarcity and maybe, you know, if more efficiently used, you know, resources like electricity or water, it's going to not only, you know, have a positive effect on the environmental footprint, but it's also going to have a positive effect on their financial bottom line as well. So if they don't do it, it's the opposite of that in terms of things will just suddenly start to get more expensive for them. They might not have access to the goods that they need in their existing business models today. And even so much in terms of, you know, finance is where they're getting their money from for investments. We know that banks, for example, are also starting to... Um, and I really look towards businesses to say, I won't lend money to certain businesses, you know, be it, you know, uh, what businesses that are very reliant on fossil fuels, for et cetera, or if we can't see that they're making sustainable progress as we go forward. So it's going to really start to impact the whole business model of companies if they don't put sustainability definitely on their radar in boardroom discussions, but also to plan and start saying, what do we need to have this as just a part of our everyday way of doing business moving forward? How do you expect the role of governments and policy makers evolve in the future in promoting um, sustainable consumerism? So I think, you know, without a doubt, um, the government has a, a massive role to play. And I think with that, you know, we all look and if you look at any of the literature around here, it's a massive you know, issue, sustainability, and not one party is going to solve it. So it's a matter of coming together, working together to see how we can start to make some positive steps forward. But specifically in Asia, when we asked our consumers in terms of who they hold most responsible for making sustainable progress, government was, you know, number one in terms of the action that they want governments to be taking to help businesses, you know, make sustainable initiatives or to help encourage them to move in that way as well. So brands were very closely followed by that. So they were neck and neck in terms of who they hold responsible. But it just goes to show, I think, and particularly, you know, if we look across the board and we look to see the amount of climate policy that has been going on, as I said, Europe is by far the leader in terms of the amount of legislation that is occurring. So, but within Asia Pacific, when we look at those, that regulation that is actually occurring, it is either, I don't, the right way to put it, it's a lot uh, less stringent, I suppose, or it's sort of probably at their very early levels. So it might be more around plastic reduction or extended producer responsibility that we've just seen to start coming into the Philippines and making noises within Vietnam, for example, as well. But I think when you compare that to what you're seeing in Europe, for example, where they're looking at full supply chains, where they're starting to say your products just can't come into this market unless you can validate where it's come from and its full supply chain, you can still see that Asia Pacific has quite a long way to go in terms of, you know, the support that it's requiring from governments to, to make some really big changes in this space. 
And if we, you know, from our consumer angle, consumers want governments to help them. So one of the numbers that I found really interesting in the report that 78% of APAC consumers, you know, a bit more than globally, which was 74%, want governments to increase the regulation to enforce businesses to move more quickly to sustainable practices to meet those climate targets particularly even higher in Thailand, India and Indonesia. And I think probably when we look around and particularly in some of those markets, you can see, you know, the pollution that is in some of those areas that, you know, consumers just want change and they want that change to happen quickly and they're looking for governments to help them in that space. So could you also uh, share with us, could you help us imagine what does the future of sustainable shopping look like? Yeah, sure thing. I think there is some amazing examples around the world. And I think with everything that we do, it's not that there aren't things happening in the here and now, but uh, whether it will come into the future or not, is we'll start to see ideas that are already out there as they start to scale and gain traction, that they become mainstream and a part for what will look the everyday future uh, of shopping look like. But some of the great examples that we see, and I think a little bit of it comes back from when we ask consumers what they, how they'd like retailers to be helping them be more sustainable as well. Um, you know, one of those key areas was the potential to create sustainable aisles, a little bit like we see today in many supermarkets. You know, we might have a health food aisle or we might have a gluten-free section within that. As consumers are saying that it's not so easy to identify what brands are sustainable and what brands aren't. But having them all ranged in a in a specific area would really help that process because it means retailers, or they've had to meet a certain criteria to get that um, that ranging decision. And so supermarkets hopefully have already gone through, or retailers have gone through that process to make sure you know brands deserve to be in that space. Uh, other examples that we see, you know, there's some great ones coming out of the the Nordic countries. Um, where there is a one particular re, uh, retailer has created an app, for example, that lets as consumers are shopping and they're scanning their items, you can actually see the client impact, the climate impact of those choices. So, what's the carbon footprint that each of those products have made? Um, another supermarket in that area, obviously, is also testing some of climate labelling as well to help, you know, particularly help consumers to see. If, you know, it's a bit like, actually, I should say France is also doing this as well, where they've got um, traffic-like labelling. So a little bit like we've got the health food stars or health labelling as well, whether it gets a red, orange or green, it's the same but from a sustainability point of view as well. And Europe is really looking about at that, so trialling it in a number of countries at the moment to seeing whether they'll scale that and make that a mainstream decision. So it's not mandatory at the moment, it's voluntary for brands to be using that but a number of retailers have come on board. And, again, the reason it makes it easier for consumers to be making those right choices. Other ways that we see is sort of incentivising um, shoppers, sometimes with what they call the green window delivery as well. Consumers can nominate to say, okay, well, give me that window that they're classifying as a green window and they get a discount for doing that, for example. So that might mean then that, you know, they don't mind at what time the product is delivered because the retailer will then try to group, you know, uh, similar households in similar areas to make sure that that delivery has a lower carbon footprint than others. 
Um, refillable stations are another big initiative that a number of retailers are trialling across the world. Here in Australia, we've got uh, Unilever is working with Coles, for example, with um, refillable laundry. So people take back their, their laundry detergent bottles and they can get them refilled Um other big initiatives that are happening in ASDA in the UK um, with, you know, similar type of big country companies as well. So, um, and I think that's, again, a little bit of an easier entry point for consumers as well. It's a brand they know and trust, you know, but, you know, they're just focusing on that reduction in plastic and, you know, refills, particularly if they come at a, a cost benefit, which can also help in this environment. It's an easy way to, uh, for consumers to help in that space. So, um, the other big area, I think, and we speak about uh, one of the biggest barriers was affordability for consumers or cost being that big barrier for buying sustainable products. But, you know, making sure that the offering that we have, be it sustainable value brands or be it sustainable private label, that we can make sure there's an easy entry point for all consumers that it doesn't necessarily have to come making a sustainable choice doesn't have to be at a price premium. Now, I think it's interesting that you share quite um, a bit of example, especially like from the Scandinavian countries and even from the US. Um, okay. But in your opinion, in what ways will the future of sustainable shopping differ between Southeast Asia and other regions worldwide? And, you know, what unique factors may shape this future? Yeah. Yeah, I think there's probably uh, two ways, and I probably should have mentioned it a little bit more because I know uh, private label isn't as big uh, of a segment as such um, by nature in Asia Pacific. But I think probably one of the other things that we came up when we looked at our consumer survey, that cost is a very big barrier for consumers as well. And I think across Asia Pacific, we're seeing that the cost of living pressures that consumers are, are feeling. So be it sustainable value brands or be it sustainable private label, for example, is, you know, it's a real opportunity to tap into that need to make sustainable a more affordable option for consumers. I think the other big area, particularly within uh, within Asia Pacific and Southeast Asia, is obviously uh, that big focus on a reduction in plastic as well. And retailers, you know, can really play a, a big role there in terms of, you know, their fresh produce areas in terms of their, um, you know, their meat sections and things like that. How do they reduce the amount of plastic just in their daily operations? But also when it comes to food waste as well. So, you know, one of the really interesting stats that I saw that Asia produces over 50% of global food waste. And I think, you know, there's massive opportunity where we can start to see how do we cut down on that um, through, you know, a number of different you know, ways that we can do that. So be it through the likes of, you know, Imperfect Fruit and Veg or be it working with charities, you know, some great examples that we see out of the UK where UK retailers are taking off best before dates of certain products, for example, because they're encouraging consumers to use their own you know, the sniff test, for example, of whether a product is still okay to be eaten rather than, you know, throwing it in the bin just because it's gone past a certain date. So a lot of different areas in that. But I think the other key one is obviously comes into e-commerce and how 
the amazing take-up that that has had across Asia-Pacific, but it also comes with its own challenges in terms of packaging and plastic um, and, you know, delivery miles and things like that. So, you know, that whole area is to say how can we start to improve through more compostable packaging materials, you know, a, a reduction in plastic. And I think, you know, that whole opportunity with online platforms really gives the, because consumers seek validation and they seek ways to make sure they're making the right choice, having that amount of information available online so that consumers can deep dive to really say, well, let me see what's, you know, sits behind this product. If I want to know what, you know, where it's come from, you know, where the product source from, what type of sustainable farming methods have been used, you've got that opportunity when you're, you know, leveraging an online platform, which is a, a lot harder when you're physically in store and you're restricted by, you know, maybe a physical label on the product itself. Mm, so now then, you know, what then can private sector, you know, such as businesses and brands uh, do in order to support um, the sustainability revolution and accelerate the progress, especially accelerate the progress towards a more sustainable future? I think the really big thing is to get a get ahead of the curve, basically, is try and lead rather than don't wait to be mandated for these things to happen. So, you know, I think it's not, it's very clear to everyone, this isn't a matter of if, you know, sustainability regulation is coming, it's a matter of when it's coming. And whilst Europe might be leading the charge right now and it has its own whole impacts in terms of importing into that massive market, you know, without a doubt, other countries are going to start taking those signals as we sign up for global pledges, et cetera, and global targets. So getting ahead, I think, is one of the key things that, all companies can start to be doing. So what can I do today? What existing solutions are already out there that I can easily adopt and start to spread? So that might start with relatively easy wins that you can put in place today. So it might be focusing on reduced food waste or local sourcing or, you know, switching to renewable energy, for example. One of the big ones that I think, you know, brands need to really look at very quickly is the removal of unsubstantiated claims that they're making on PAC. So take them away. If you can't substantiate it, take it away until you can type of thing because I think it's better to be forthright and not, you know, sprouting something that you can't back up because you will lose consumer trust and you will also potentially be fined in the, in the longer term. But I think, you know, also some of these things we know it's a journey. It's going to be a massive commitment, a massive effort for all parties to, to get to the goals that we need to get to. But it's all about putting sustainability on the corporate agendas right now in most decisions that we're making. As I said, start with the easy things, but also start planning for what the mid and long term will look like. So that might mean, you know, additional investment that we're going to have to do, that it takes time and it's going to take extra money to put those things in place. But we need to start planning for it now because you can't just, you know, click your fingers and say, okay, I need to know, you know, how sustainable my farmers are, for example, and the products where I'm sourcing. You need to start working with them, getting them to understand the importance, putting sensors in place all of those different types of things to be able to track that in the longer term because that longer term will be here before we know it. And I think 
what we do believe is that companies that can get ahead can start planning. They're going to be the winners versus those who are less scrambling to adjust their business models who may not be able to do that in time once um, where we see the regulatory environment that will be occurring. Yeah, I think that bring us bring out a point, you know, like there's need to be commitment from the brands and, you know, there's investment required. So then, you know, for the smaller players, how will then, you know, future of uh, sustainability impact uh, the smallest player, especially like the SME? And, you know, what steps can they take uh, to respond to this shift or proactively prepare for it since, you know, they probably have, you know, lesser resources and, yeah, yeah. Look, I think, you know, it is obviously, you know, the big companies have more money to invest and, you know, probably more infrastructure to to fall back on to help them in that process. But at the same time, I think there's also a, the simplicity of the smaller medium brands is that they have that greater transparency of their supply chains and they have that closer working relationship with their suppliers and their producers as well. And I think that is a massive advantage for small to medium businesses that they can start to say, well, if I can validate, if I can work with these producers and suppliers, obviously having that sustainability hat on from the very beginning, making sure that it's at the table in all of your discussions when you're talking about product innovation you know, what are we doing to make sure we're going to meet these potential needs moving forwards and these regulatory requirements? But, you know, working with producers and suppliers right at that very beginning is going to help that so that you can see what that path is, you can validate um, and have that transparency of supply chain means that those companies will be, you know, potentially work with accreditation suppliers. So you get that accreditation. So you've got the necessary documents in place when it's needed to come. So I think whilst there is investment upfront required as new products and as, um, you know, companies evolve in this space, it's making that sustainability top of mind and a central part of all decisions as they move forward. So, um, and hopefully I think that will put small to medium businesses in a lot better place. I think just as an example is, you know, I look at the, the B Corp uh, accreditation website quite often. And when you look at the brands that are on there, the vast majority of those brands are small, you know, definitely smaller players who have got that accreditation process, you know, a lot earlier. And I think that is all about because they can, it's a more controlled environment mm-hmm. that they can work with partners to do that. And having some of those uh, accreditations behind you is definitely is going to be what will earn that consumer trust moving forward forward, but it will also then make sure you've got the required information to meet the regulatory um, conditions that uh, are sure to come. There's really a lot of things happening on the, you know, sustainability front. And I think it'll be an interesting and, you know, um, exciting period, especially in the Southeast Asia as uh, brands and businesses, whether big or small, uh, try to embed sustainability into their uh, business practices. So with that, um, thank you so much, Nicole, for joining Lazada Insider and sharing your knowledge and expertise on this topic. And to the listeners, we hope uh, you enjoyed this episode and bye. Thank you. Thank you very much, everyone. This is Lazada Insider. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you click follow and subscribe so you don't miss our latest insights and expert interviews. Thanks again for joining us. Until next time, take care. La Zara